0: Genesis chapter 12 Genesis 12 and we want to finish the chapter verses 10 to 20 and uh this is a story that I think we we know it uh we probably find it to be an odd story uh don't know what to do with it but actually as as you read through it in Genesis the more more I study Genesis because we're we're doing a deep dive in Genesis that's why it's going to take us uh you all can't fire me until we finish Genesis so that is that is that is a that is job security right there. Is the camera on? Yeah, it's it's recording. We got one person on. Um it's me. Ah, okay. It's you. Um So I can't talk bad about people? You can. So and solid. then okay. I'm not going to defend you. Um but uh <laughs> Andy might, I don't know. Uh, um depends on what his, his price is. But um um as long as not about But uh what you'll find the story is is it's introducing a lot of themes that are going to play a major role in in Genesis. So uh, this is a really important story. So let's read it, verse uh, chapter twelve, verse ten. Uh, there's two now, and it, one's not you. So so once you once you yeah once you left, we doubled. Fair. So all right, verse ten. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it will go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princesses, I can't do the plural of prince, forgive me, Princesses of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, it's an odd story, but an important one, as we said. So we're really beginning the story of Abraham here. We got the covenant in the first nine verses, and that's important. We got his genealogy at the end of chapter 11. This is really the beginning of the narrative of Abraham. And throughout all of Jewish history and Christian history, when you think of Abraham, you probably think of one thing, and that is faith. In fact, if you were to read the Hall of Faith in Genesis or Hebrews 11, you'll find that of all the characters, Abraham gets the most ink. It's not Moses or David, it is Abraham. Abraham has come down as the uh, model of faith. And be clear, he is a good model for that. Uh, think about it. He, he, he moves a, a, away from his family and his upbringing, his hometown, all that sort of stuff, which would, would have been a massive uh, uh, doing, and it would have been uh, not something you normally would have done. Your identity was tied to your home and your family and, and all that sort of stuff. He leaves all that behind. He continues to try to, be, to conceive with his wife for, for 25 years. Uh, despite the, the challenges that was there. And then later, as we'll see in chapter 22, he will offer his son, his promised son, finally given to him as a sacrifice. Right, there's plenty of examples of Abraham exercising faith. Um, however, when you really read the story, it's like we're dealing with the disciples, right? It's, it's, yeah, they have those high moments of awesomeness, but it seems like over and over again you're saying, oh, here we go again. Didn't they learn the first time? In fact, this story of Abraham uh, going into uh, another city, nation, village, whatever, encouraging his wife to lie about her identity uh, will happen again in chapter 20. And that story will happen again in chapter 26 with Isaac, his son. And there's other examples that we're going to get where, yes, he's known for his faith, um, but he also seems to risk the covenant God makes with him for reasons of doubt, fear, expediency, all of that. And so what we see here is is Abraham wrestling with, with this, this issue of faith. Now, let's recall the Abrahamic covenant we, we saw last week. Um, uh, he's promised three things, just to summarize. We looked at five last week, but, but we could summarize it with three. The first is land. Even though he is an alien and a sojourner in Canaan, God has promised him that he will possess the land. He and his descendants. And this is part of the reason I believe while Abraham goes and sets up all those altars between verses 4 and 9, uh, he he is taking ownership. Remember that what Abraham is doing in Canaan, it's, it's the inverse of Eden. In Eden, Adam and Eve are placed there. You have a garden lush land that they were then to expand the borders to fill the world. What Abram is called to do, brought here by God, is he is to... to, to plant an altar by the tree. Remember the, the garden images we saw last week. And and so in the wilderness he is to arrest back creation. This is this is an image of redemption. God has choosing Abraham his descendants to bring restoration, redemption. Right? And and this is what makes verse ten important is is there's a famine in the land. We're reminded that he is in wilderness. He he's in a desolate place and, and this is the place God has called him to dwell and to to, to succeed at. So there's land. The second is lineage. Um, he is going to be the father of nations. The problem with that is he's not a father, right? That's step one, um, become a dad before step two, right? Your descendants have, uh, have nations. Well, so, so he is going to possess this land and this land is going to be a place of, of, of the nations. And finally, loyalty, those nations that bless him, and his descendants will be blessed; those nations that dishonor him, and his and his descendants will be dishonored. Uh, right? So, so that's, that's the three: there, there is land, lineage, and loyalty. However, in this single narrative, all three are undermined by Abraham. <laughs> I mean, he's and, now remember this is the story right after the promise. The first nine verse, chapter twelve, is God's. I'm going to do these three things for him. What does Abraham do? So, okay. How quickly can I violate all three of them? Okay, all right, I'm going to test you, God, okay? Land, I'm going to leave Canaan. <laughs> Lineage, I'm going to say she's my sister and hand her over to another man. Um, uh, loyalty, um, I'm going to go to the nations, and because of my actions, God is going to judge them, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, instead of being a blessing to the nations, I'm going to be a curse to the nations. All three he violates right here from the very beginning. Not a very good start. Not, not not, a good start at all. So, verses 10 through 16, um, I, I don't think I titled all of this. This part I titled Walk Like an Egyptian. Um, but uh, um, you guys, did you guys get that reference? No that song? Okay, all right. Yeah. That's okay. This is why you all need Napster, but that's illegal. So, got you got the Walk Like an Egyptian, you had a good upbringing? Good. Um, good. <laughs> Uh, we used to sing that in King Tut, just going around. You know, remember the old commercials? And I was a kid, just King Tut. You know, just all the time for, for no reason. You know. And they asked, "What are he you doing?" He said, I'm walking like an Egyptian. I don't know how they they walk. You, you don't care. Okay. So verse ten through sixteen, he's he's going to walk like an Egyptian. And so right away, we see several patterns uh, introduced here that will show up uh, several other times. First. A famine in Canaan Canaan, forces the people of God to flee to Egypt. Does that story sound familiar? Yeah, it's going to be a major plot point later on in Genesis. That Joseph is sold into slavery there, right, which is going to be inverse of something else I don't know if we'll get to. But while Joseph is there, the uh, descendants of uh, the sons of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, will return to Egypt because of famine. By the way, this is a similar story you get in Ruth. Remember, in Ruth, um, uh, Naomi uh, is married to uh, a guy in Bethlehem, right? They're Bethlehemites, and Bethlehem means house of bread. The problem with the house of bread in the age of the judges is there is no bread in the house of bread is famine. So what does uh, Naomi and her family do? They leave the house of bread for the Moabites, And, and Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, as is Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah. And and so they have to leave the house of bread for bread, but what do they find there? They find tragedy. And so eventually Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, um, and they, they they eventually find bread, but it, it's, it's a different kind of bread. Um, so just as Sarah is barren, so is the land. So now, now remember the promises. You will be given land, but it's barren. You will be given a son, but your wife is barren. Um. This this makes the promise even more unlikely to to be fulfilled. Um, Secondly, we see that Abraham resorts to his own wisdom. Now, this is a pattern we've seen going all the way back to Adam, Adam and Eve, right? Um, when, When you have two trees and given the choice, they choose to become like God. They choose to take the promises of God into their own hands. Abraham does essentially the same thing. He plants a tree, remember, in, in, in ver- between verses 4 and 9. And this, this becomes symbolic. He's got the altar there and God's presence there, all that sort of stuff. But what does he end up doing? He ends up taking for himself his own wisdom. And this leads uh, down, down uh, several quarters of, of, of brokenness. Um, and, uh, uh, and as a result, he'll, he'll risk his wife's honor. Again, Isaac will do the same thing later. Um, Thirdly, despite all of this, God preserves Abraham and his covenantal people. A good parallel here would be the wilderness experience of Israel. Despite just what the Baptists were doing over there, right? God still put up with them, right? And there's good news in that. God's people are a wreck. They've always been a wreck, but God still loves them for reasons that only he can explain to us. And he's going to do the same thing with Abraham here. Despite all of that, God's loving kindness and patience endures uh, with grace. So verse 10, we see the famine. Uh, There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there because the famine was severe. Now immediately, receiving the promises and adopting Canaan as his new home, he's forced to flee that home. That is is not, not, not the way to... Um, start a new uh, career. Now, droughts and famines were common at this time. In fact, archaeologists have found evidence of people um, seeking refuge in Egypt during such famines. Um, and the reason why Egypt was a, uh, a popular place for that was because the way Egypt is, uh, is geog- geographically. The Nile River is why there's never a drought in Egypt. Um, growing up, uh, well, nine, flood of 97, was really bad in Owen County. You couldn't hardly leave the county because uh, Sparta was, was flooded, Monterey was flooded and you know, all these other places. Gratz was real bad because the Kentucky is right there. So you couldn't hardly leave the county. National Guard came in, it was, it was a crazy time. And I remember my mother asking my father, should we ever worry about being flooded like this? Because a lot of people we loved and knew had flood damage really bad. And I remember my father, mom and dad's house was at the top of a hill. Mom and dad said, look, if we ever have flooding issues at our house, we're the least of government's worries, right? <laughs> because across the street, is, is, it's downhill. So you, you go down the hill, here's the street, and then it goes down again. There was a trailer there. Uh, and, and they would be just smothered in, and drowned in, in waters if we got flooded. So too here, if, if Egypt ever has a famine and a drought, ain't no one surviving outside of Egypt, Right? Um, in fact, we, we have archaeological evidence that there was about a 300-year cycles of drought around this time in Canaan. Was it man-made? <laughs> See, this is one of those moments of temptation. Let me just make one little comment. This is a compromise. We used to burn trees all the time around the world. That's pretty bad, isn't it? And if it's man made, why did it only happen or anyways I, I try to avoid politics um, so uh, but we see here that the promised land is hostile to Abraham um, and and we, we we talked about that now notice this that taken as a unit, Genesis twelve to Genesis fifty. so if we start here in the story of Abraham and it concludes the story of Joseph with the burial of uh, Joseph and Jacob in, in the promised land. Uh, what you have is it opens with a famine, and since she closes with a famine, uh, it opens with Egypt and it closes in Egypt. Uh, it bookends. And so the narrative is centered here in Palestine, but, but what is on either end of them is is Egypt. Um, so we have a foreigner coming in to um, to seek refuge and as such he is a He's from a nation that isn't his own, seeking refuge from another nation. So he, he, he doesn't have the protection of kings in Palestine and Canaan. He doesn't have any of that. He's a stranger in a strange land who's going to another strange land, which means he is at the mercy of the Egyptian hospitality. This, this likely explains some of his actions here. It uh, doesn't justify it, uh, but, but I do think it helps us understand it. Um, he is in no position to make demands. Uh, And so that's the the dilemma. Uh, It's a very real one. Sarah is beautiful. And there is an old Egyptian tale. I don't know the genesis of it. Was it before Abraham's time or not? I don't know. But it's called the two brothers. In it, Pharaoh falls in love with a married woman. And so he has her husband killed. And he gives her the title of great lady and brings her into his household. Now, let's just say that story was around. You enter a city and say, oh, by the way... Pharaoh might uh, take your wife and kill you. I think you're going to come up with a plan. It may not be a good plan. You're going to come up with a plan, right? And that, that is quite, quite a dilemma. See, really, he has uh, two options. One, if Sarah's declared his wife, the fear is Pharaoh will kill me. The other is uh, if I say she's my sister, Pharaoh will take her, but at least I get to live. So, So his options are, look... They're going to steal Sarah from me. So the choice is I live or I die, right? That's the only thing I can control. So he chooses self-preservation. Now, this is typical of us humans, right? We prefer self-preservation. When I was in college, I had a 1987 baby blue Chevy Nova, zero to 60 sometimes, never up the hill, right? If you're at zero and you start up a hill, you ain't going to make it. My youth, uh, I had one youth in particular, if he was sitting in the front seat, if we were going up uh, uh, Monterey Hill or Sparta Hill, something like that, uh, or Frankfurt Hill even. Uh, we would joke, hey, someone give me a push, you know, while we we're just putting up this hill. And he would really like, I don't know, and you could feel the car jump up. I mean, how is it that you can go from like a, a just a beautiful 1972 Chevy Nova with racing stripes, red and black, of course, go karts, to that monstrosity 1987 hatchback it is incredible I, you can lock your keys in the car all you want to because of the trunk you just turn a little thing and you can climb through the hatch i mean it was awesome man it was really awesome um i miss the car i mean I, i'm glad i have nicer cars but i do miss it um but nevertheless uh, i got t-boned by an illegal immigrant when i was in college uh i, I left a uh, curfew i'd already signed in and, Snuck out, and yeah, the one time I do it. Um, a buddy of mine didn't have a car and he needed to go to the Walmart market. And so, this is what happens when you violate Albert Moeller's rules. And so, I got, uh, w- was gonna turn left at a light, and the guy T-boned me. He ran red light. And, it, and there's two cars involved, both, uh, no, I think it's one car. Uh, it was two illegal immigrants in it. Uh, one guy comes up, he says, Can we tell the police I was driving and not my brother? Uh, because uh, the way somehow he had a license or whatever he needed, uh, he was on the insurance, whatever it was, but his brother wasn't, which meant the insurance wouldn't have covered it, and we never got anything from insurance. We couldn't get a hold of anyone or anything like that. But, but why would he ask us that? Self-preservation. Um, and uh, we, we all do this. And that, that's what Abram does too. If, if we were at risk of Pharaoh killing us, I think we would uh, sprinkle the truth with a little bit of of falsity, wouldn't you? Don't sit there, state employee, and tell me otherwise. Uh, I think we all would. Um, But but I can't remember the context. Has God not promised him land? Why did he flee? Has God not promised him a son? Why would he risk his wife? It's it's an incredible story. And that, that leads to the lie now, we need to note here it's it's clear in the Hebrew, but you do get it in in English. Um, notice verse eleven. He said to Sarah, his wife, "I know that you are beautiful, uh, you are a woman, beautiful in appearance." And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, "This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you that I'm, my life may be spared for your sake." In the Hebrew, it comes off not as a command, but as a request. He's asking, When asked, will you say this? Which means he is drawing his wife in to deceive. It's not a command. It's it's, it's an agreement. Now the reason this is significant, because this is, it mirrors the false story. What is the false story? Eve is deceived. She turns to her husband. She doesn't command. She, She requests. She entices. She draws him in. And you remember, what does it say in Genesis 3.17 uh, when God's handing out the curses? Because you listen to the voice of your wife. And we make a lot of jokes about that uh, whenever our wives aren't around. Um, but here you could, if, if, if the same verse was put here, he would say uh, to Sarah, because you listen to the voice of your husband. It's essentially the same story. Uh, given the choice, they choose uh, the, the, the wrong thing, and then verses fourteen and fifteen we we see the princess here don 't we? Uh, so she agrees to lie, and Abraham and Sarah enter Egypt, and what Abraham fears comes true, notice they see that she is lovely, much in the same way that that the fruit was delightful to the eyes, and um, they see that she 's beautiful, and notice it 's the princesses somehow you have to say the plural of prince without it sounding like princess. And I will always struggle with that. Princesses. Not princesses. Princesses. English is a terrible language. Princesses. I'm putting too many S's in there. I know, but it's... Princesses. (laughs) Princesses. Whatever it is. Now, there's a play on words here. The word for princesses Prince is the masculine for the word princess. You already know that. In Hebrew, the words are Sarah. Sarah means princess. So the masculine is essentially the same. Just change the vowels, like, like, like we do. So it's not an accident that the princesses see a princess and brings the princess to Pharaoh. Because right? they were under Pharaoh, so they bring her to Pharaoh. And she is she is beautiful. Now, one of the things that should bother us here, particularly since the men are dominating here presently, sorry, Ms. Betty, um, uh, so I'm going to take, take take your side, all women's side here. Every time this story is read, maybe because it, I, from my background, we read this you know, occasionally in, in youth group, right? And what is the question? How can they consider Sarah attractive? At this time, she's, she's about 65 years old. And then you get all this, well, I just don't understand that. And at that moment, we reveal how we read the Bible as modern Americans. And it should bother us. It really should. A couple of things here. First of all, that is insulting to 65-year-old women. <laughs> Why doesn't that ever cross our mind? <laughs> right? oh, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Secondly, our society confuses beauty... With prettiness, this is something muller has been really helpful for me on is, is we we 've converged those two what is pretty is beautiful right so this is why we 'll say that youthfulness is beautiful pretty right it 's attractive, and so this is why we spend billions upon billions of dollars on trying to look younger right? uh, we as society men and women do this to be young is to be beautiful to be pretty we've converged these that's not the Christian worldview. the Christian worldview is that You can be pretty and not beautiful. You can be beautiful, but not pretty. For example, uh, an airbrushed photo of a young model on the billboard is pretty. We all agree with that. But that can be pretty ugly, too. The face of a Down Syndrome child may not be pretty. But if we're pro-life, it's very beautiful. In fact, I will say the most beautiful child I've ever seen, other than my two, I don't know why I have to explain that, um, would be, it was at a funeral of an infant that died of trisomy 13. It's a beautiful child, tragic in, in its loss, but beautiful child. Pretty? No. Because you can see this was a, this was a, a child with, with a type of Down syndrome. And we mourn that. And there is death. That is ugly. We see this child is beautiful. We would say the same thing about the cross too. An instrument of torture and death is ugly and unjust and evil. But there's a reason why Christians wear it around their neck and hang it on their wall. It's because we understand there is beauty in that. So, so when we read a passage like that, like this, let's not confuse those two, which is an American and Western thing to do. Thirdly, our standards are superficial and closely associated with lust. So we say whatever is pretty is, is attractive, and it's associated with desire. That is not always the way it was in, in, in the ancient world. That's really my fourth point. Ancient societies found power, influence, and dignity attractive. So what we do is our understanding of prettiness is superficial, obviously. Uh, I mean, you, you can't sell a sandwich without a beautiful woman attached to it. right? I taught a uh, logic class. I think it was in my logic class b t b and I showed one of the Kardashians, I don't know which one it was, who cares? Um, they're famous for being famous and that's it. They did a Pepsi commercial. You may remember, it was, it was controversial. And so the Kardashian drinks a Pepsi, she's all dressed, you know, to be attractive, and she leads like a riot of young people to start a revolution. And it's never clear what the revolution is. But they're all drinking Pepsis, and they're starting a revolution! I don't know who I'm supposed to be against in this. Like, what, what is the revolution about? Well, what's the whole point is beautiful people drink Pepsi and you'll change the world. I guess that's good, right? We're very superficial in our approach to these things. In ancient culture, um, it, it, it was very different. Age was viewed as attractive because with that came wisdom and experience, power and wealth. And let's be honest, who do you think is wealthier right now? Someone who's 20, right out of high school, right? someone who is on the brink of early retirement, okay? (laughs) Which one do you think is wealthier? Can I tell you why? There's a 40 year gap between them. So 20 year olds, yes, I know, you want to have the wealth of your parents. You're not gonna have that until your your parents' age, if you work as hard as they have, right? I I don't know why that's so difficult. I get young couples in for marriage and they say, well, you know, we want this lifestyle. I'm like, you won't get that for 30 years. You gotta start at the bottom of, of your company. You know, right? But but so 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 it's it's measured very different. So it makes complete sense uh why this is. If you want another example of this, I've gone too long. Um, another example of this would be the story of, of Odysseus. I just started reading a version of it to, to my daughter yesterday. You know the story of Odysseus who fought in Troy, he's trying to get back. His wife, Penelope, uh Odysseus hasn't been there for ten years. He's got she's got all these suitors who who wanted to marry her. Now Penelope is between 45 and 50 years old, and she's got got suitors all lined up to marry her. Why? Wealth, power, influence, all that sort of stuff. This is the way the ancient world worked. So, by the way, this is the first time we meet a pharaoh in Genesis or in the Bible. That's going to be important. Notice he is unnamed, as will be the later pharaoh, which is important because read Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh goes unnamed, but the midwives are named because the the writer sees them as more honorable and worthy to be named than mighty Pharaoh, who is just simply forgotten. I, I, I love that. Um, and notice how the nations are blessing Abraham. So you see it there um, that Abram is given. He's blessed materially sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Um, now. That's the opposite, right? Abram is to be a blessing to the nations, not the nations a blessing to Abram. Now, those who bless Abraham will will be blessed. But the idea is he will be a blessing to them. But they're having to be a blessing to him. Uh, The plagues in verses 17 to 20, does that sound familiar? Jews go down to Egypt and God sends plagues. Does that sound familiar? It's it's, it's the same story. Um, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, notice the parallels here. First of all, famine leads to dwelling in Egypt. Secondly, Sarah, in a sense, is held in bondage in Pharaoh. Thirdly, God sends plagues upon Egypt. And fourthly, the Egyptians bless Abraham, uh, or the Jews, his descendants, upon their return to Canaan. It's the same story. So why is that so important? If you are a slave in Egypt... And the, these oral stories are coming to you because they haven't been written down yet. There's a story in there about your great, 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 however many, grandfather, Abram. You remember when the famine took him down to Egypt? Remember his wife was taken into bondage of Pharaoh's house? What did God do? He set him free. And He'll do it again. It was a reminder of God's promises to his people. Now the word plague is, is interesting. Um, I want to highlight the first three times this word is used. The first time is in chapter three. God said, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden; neither shall you touch it, lest you die." The word "plague" it's, it's a word meaning to strike down. It's, it's a plague. It's a disease. It's, it's to be it's smite. Right? It's, it's, it has a variety of, of, of usage depending on context. So, so, the word used in Genesis three, "Don't eat of this tree, lest you die," it's the same word used that God uses to Egypt. And and we see the parallels between Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and Abraham and Sarah here in in Genesis 12. The the third use is the second time God or Abraham does this to his wife, Genesis 20. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in in the integrity of your heart, speaking to Abimelech. And it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I will not let you touch her. He's using the, the same word There. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, remember that doctors were trained in medicine. Yes, you know, you break a bone, they can fit it, fix it, and all that sort of stuff. They're also trained in, in like, uh, sorcery. So if you have a breakout of disease, all of a sudden, they're not looking for uh, germs. (laughs) They're looking to the gods. And this is probably how Pharaoh uncovers that something is, is awry here. Um, and so Pharaoh's response in verse 18 to 20 is striking. Uh, he 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 calls out Abraham. Why would you do this to me? Remember, Abraham is to be a blessing to the nations. But he's being a curse to the nations. And so a pagan has to call out a child of God. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. We mentioned Rabbi Zacharias earlier. That that, that a pagan is having to call out a child of God. What, is it? what did it Paul um criticize the Corinthians for it. You're doing things and tolerating things that the Gentiles are embarrassed to even mention. Like, if the pagan world is more righteous than you, there's something off here. Something really off here. And we're getting that here. Now, um, what separates this Pharaoh from the later Pharaoh is this Pharaoh lets Sarah go. Sets her free. The later Pharaoh... Won't. Not until the 10th plague comes. And striking, it's the death of the firstborn. Here, it's the preservation of that promised son. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, here, let me add a footnote for, for your information. What if I told you there's another story about Abraham? It's, it's between chapter 12, verse 20, and chapter 13, verse 1. It's there. Well, it's not in your Bible, I meant to bring it. It's, it's in the uh, Doctrines and Covenants of the Mormon Church. Had I known people were going to be here tonight, I would have put this up on a PowerPoint. I've shown this to you before. Uh, open up the Book of Abraham and Google it. And what Joseph Smith did was they were out in Nauvoo, right? it's Illinois, it's still there. The city at that time had, I believe, surpassed Chicago in population because of the influx of Mormons. Um, this was around the time that Joseph Smith runs for president um, in fact he was run for president when he when he jumped out of the prison window and died chapter? it's the book of Abraham let's start in chapter 1 oh, that's, yeah. I that was oh, no that's the book, book of Mormon, Mormon. Oh, okay. yeah so the book of Mormon is their main book they have, they have the doctrines of covenants and the pearl of great price I, I think it's in doctrines and covenants but you, you can just Google Book of Abraham, and the uh, LDS church will take you right to it. I don't know if it will have the pictures. Um, I've got it in my office if, if you want to see it. But what you need to do is actually Google um, something like Book of Abraham painting, uh, and it will probably show you both. So, so what, what happened was there was a guy—I don't spend forever on this. Now you guys got, got me all excited about Mormons. Um, a guy was traveling. He had a mummy with him. And he was traveling around. Hey, would you like to see my mummy? That'll be $1.50. That's basically what he's doing. He's got all his goodies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is, that's the one. Yes. Now, that's the original. Okay? So, so there's a mummy. And, and Joseph Smith says, hey, can I buy the mummy off of you? Yeah. He says, sure. Hey, the pri- if the price mm-hmm. is right, you can buy anything in, in America. He buys this mummy. Okay? Now, remember, no one has ever been to Egypt. No one knows anything about the Egyptians outside of what is in the Bible. and maybe a few other stories. No one knows any of this stuff. So a mummy is just... You can go see a mummy at Southern Seminary, and every time my kids are just, there's a mummy. Is this place haunted, right? I mean, they're just so amazed by that. So he buys this mummy. In it is a scroll. Now remember, no one can read hieroglyphics, which means you can make up whatever you want. And Joseph Smith claims that the Book of Mormon was translated from a language called Reformed Egyptian. Now it doesn't exist. He made it up. And you can't go get the originals. They were buried by the angel Moroni, and you'll never find them in, in New York. So he finds a scroll. It's in hieroglyphics. He translates it. It's the lost book of Abraham. Now, Mormons are still looking for these books. They still believe there's other books to be uncovered, and they'll add them to, to, to their sacred text. And it tells all these weird stories, whatnot, about Abraham's time in Egypt right here between, chapter, in, here in between verses 10 and 20, story of Abraham's happening, okay? Now, he took a drawing... He put it in it. It is still in the book of Abraham to this day. It is an official canon document. The problem is, we later found the original. And we, did, we, we discover what, what O. Joe Smith did. And in the picture, he says, Look, this is Abraham. This is a priest. This is, right? And they look like human heads. But if you know anything about Egyptian uh, imagery, there's not a lot of human heads. It's a human body with a bird head, right? with a bull head that sort of stuff what happened was joseph smith's scroll that part had been ripped off the top of the picture so what he did was he guessed what it looked like you can see it if, if you take two pictures and you put them over each other you can see right where the cut was and where he just well they gotta have a human head <laughs> and he drew it that's the book of abraham and to them they believe it is it is the real deal it is, there's an entire documentary on it it's about 30 minutes long it's on, on the YouTube I've put it on the website before I'll probably put it on there again whenever I need, need material so you should watch it tonight uh, men go, go, go to your spouse and say hey honey tonight, tonight's movie night pull up the YouTube we're going to watch the book of Abraham and try not to laugh tell me after about Day. yeah <laughs> <laughs> honey have I got plans for you Yeah. <laughs> that'll woo any woman the preacher's wife wouldn't sit through about five minutes of that. You know, I just find it fascinating, right? We've talked about it before. I've shown you images, and um, maybe if I think of it next week, I'll show it to you. Okay, so what do we do, do with this passage? I, I want to head out here. Five points of application take me at least 50 minutes. Here we go. Number one, people of faith are flawed. That's obvious in this text. Um, in case the stories of Noah and Abraham so far haven't been obvious, the people of faith are flawed. Now, that is something we need to receive but not tolerate at the same time, right? So so we, we do live, live in, in this tension, right? Where, where holiness is the goal, but we're broken people. So we have to hold each other accountable, build each other up for holiness, while at the same time recognizing we are flawed. There's real tension there. This is why maybe you come from a fundamentalist background to where if you had a tattoo hidden somewhere and someone knew about it but never seen it, you were excommunicated, right? Uh, because holiness was everything. So you have holiness without allowing room for brokenness. On the other hand, there's the libertarian view where, where brokenness is okay, but you're not allowing room for holiness. But that is a really difficult tension. What we have here is someone who is broken, but God's grace is still sufficient for him. And that, that is a hard tension to, to work through. This is what makes church life really messy. It really does. Um, secondly, truth matters. He lies. He lies. He lies. And that lie affects a lot of people. Uh, Pharaoh and all of Egypt, that comes under the plagues. It affects his wife. Um, Not only does he tell a lie, but he refuses to believe the truth that God had given him. That is equally important. God had said, this is who you are. This is what you will become. Follow me. And what Abraham did was, I believe it, but I need to take matters into my own hands. So not only did he tell a lie, but he started to believe a lie about himself. Truth really does matter. And as a result, his wife suffered. Um, And and he suffered. uh, Thirdly, God doesn't need our help. Isn't that in the text? I do think maybe Abraham should have stayed in Canaan. God would have provided. This is the land I want you. I didn't tell you to go to Egypt. I told you to go to Canaan. If I wanted to go to Egypt, I would have said, hey, go to Canaan. But before you... Before you set up a new uh, address, go visit Egypt on vacation. I said, No what he said. Go to Canaan, it's where I want you. And there he was, he was Roman Canaan declaring this is the land of the Lord, and what does he do? in, in a moment's notice he's down in Egypt in fear. Uh, God doesn't need our help. He can take care of himself, he can take care of ourselves. Fourthly, God causes people to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham really failed at this. This is the point of Abraham. Right? This, isn't this our theology of Christ? It is that anyone who believes in Christ is a true son or daughter of Abraham, and by that we are blessings to the nations. This is why we go to the nations to tell them about Jesus. Isn't it? We are called to be a blessing to the nations. We are called to surrender all that we have and all that we are for the good of others. Abraham fails at that. Finally, our choices have consequences. I bet I bet you missed this, but I bet you'll never miss it again. Chapter twelve, verse sixteen. What all does good old Abe get from the Egyptians? Now remember the parallel. You remember that when the later generation they leave Egypt they get gold. What do they do with that gold? They turn into a golden calf. What happens with Abraham's possessions? He gets the camels, sheep, donkeys, gets servants. And notice how that is laid out there. Male servants and female servants. Why is that so important? Why don't you just say servants, right? You can just assume there's men and women involved. Why is he specifying male servants, female servants? Any idea? Is this going to come back to haunt him? He looked kind of haggard when he said Haggard. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because the opposite story is going to happen. So on two times, um, Abraham is going to hand his wife over to temptation. Hand her over to sexual sin. Two occasions you're going to do that. And right in the middle, Sarah's going to do the same thing to Abraham. And who is it that Abraham sleeps with? A A female servant from Egypt named Hagar. Now this story is set up here, and it's so subtle, you can miss it. But later on, she says, Here, take one of my Egyptian servants. Where did that come from? She shouldn't have been there in the first place. Despite the issue of slavery, I, I'm, that's awful, yes. But in the narrative, his choices and his disobedience come back to haunt him. And we're still dealing with that today, aren't we? You have the uh, Jews on one hand, the Palestinians and the Arabs on the other. And what are they fighting over? Who's the true son of promise? Is it the son of Hagar? Is it the son of Sarah? Our choices still have consequences. Alright. Anything else you guys see here? It's a really good story. isn't? It? I love it. I've been looking forward to the story for a while. Oh. Alright. Well, let me say thank you guys for uh, risking it all tonight. Uh, I am a member of OEV Little Faith. I didn't know anyone was going to show up. But I'm certainly glad y'all did. It's a lot, lot more funner when y'all are here. Um, we get to interact with the text. So uh, next we'll see Abraham and Lot. Uh, they have a business meeting, and uh, Lot goes and starts his own church. So uh, that'll be fun. Lord willing, next week, if I get another migraine, then you'll know bad weather's coming. So uh, All right, with that, how about we stand and we'll close out in prayer.